0: Today on Pro Wrestling History Nerds, we discuss a wrestler who was a Midwestern farm boy with a mean streak and a fast-talking New York manager who knew how to rile up the crowd. Is it Brock Lesnar? No, it's the terror of the 19th century grappling world, Evan the Strangler, Lewis. Crazy territory, stories, double crosses and sweats, Pro Wrestling History Nerds. Holy crap, we're back. We're back, everybody. It's me, Nick Gossert, uh, one of the two hosts of this gosh darn show, and I'm right here with the Tweedledee to my Tweedledum. It's Shango Bronson.
1: Perhaps the Tweedledumber, and I don't mean to be a bummer, but they let us back in here for a second episode, a second, third, no, no, cut, cut, take two. This is a third episode. We've already done two most cabotastical episodes with positive reviews, blowing remarks, heather and fro across the board, You know, it feels good to be appreciated.
0: So apparently the caffeine is working. We're all fired up and we're ready to talk about the history of pro wrestling because that's what this podcast is all about. We're here to dive deep, get our hands dirty with those old books smelling so awesome. I don't know why I said it that way, but I like the smell of old books. I'm kind of weird that way because I am a history nerd. Are you a history
1: nerd? I love the taste of a 1928 penny in the morning
0: that's a weird thing to be yelling that loud but okay (laughs) um but yeah so we're here to talk about pro wrestling history and a lot of people when you listen to these shows and thank you to everybody who listened to the william Muldoon episodes and said they liked it i was surprised anybody was even going to pay attention to this crazy thing we're doing but we appreciate the hell out of it
1: tremendous support tremendous reverence and and you know glowing reviews you know
0: uh, apparently, the people can appreciate a Van Gogh. Well, nobody uh, nobody said they hated it anyway. But uh, we're here to talk about pro wrestling history, which is an oral tradition. It's a storytelling tradition. So there are people out there who are going to hear this version of the story and say, you know what, guys? I heard it a different way, WTF. And you know what? You probably did because... True stories become fiction the second you start telling the story. Everything's subjective, everybody has their own agendas. Um, so there's 50 versions of every single story. I've patched uh, these ones together from articles, from the old interwebs, from books I found on the subject. So I'm doing the best I can, I'll present the best truth that I can discover, and Hopefully we uh, have a lot of fun exploring this. Uh, Are you up for this one today? Because I'm excited. I am proud to be the
1: co-adventuire sidekick to the man I consider the Indiana Jones of the pro wrestling bones.
0: I guess that makes you short round?
1: Uh, uh, no, I'm never short around, round two.
0: <laughs> All right, well, with that, with the basics out of the way, let's just jump right into this because we got a barn burner of a tale today. Uh, we're here to talk about Evan Strangler Lewis. And why do they call him the Strangler?
1: The Strangler, you say? This man was a super serious sophisticate that had the turn of the century tough guys shaking in their knickers. He had mastered the art of the strangulation, the anti-blood to the brain, jugular compression and configuration. Uh, you, you have done a tremendous amount of research on the particular holds that he had famously dubbed the stranglehold and, it, and we may reveal some uh, hidden strangulation archeology span today, as it were, a little CSI, uh, post-mortem because I'm, I'm very interested in hearing your results. That you, have, that you have uncovered on the nature of the Stranglehold by Strangler Lewis.
0: Well, first of all, we have to talk about what the hell is a Stranglehold? How did he get the nickname, The Strangler? We're gonna talk about this one specific technique because I had to dig through so much to even figure this goddamn uh, hold out. Records from the late 1800s, a little on the spotty side, um, but it turns out what the stranglehold was is something that in Jiu Jitsu and MMA today we call a guillotine, um, also called a hanghold. Tell us about a guillotine.
1: So essentially what it is is you are standing or in front of your opponent and you have them in another term, it would be a front facing headlock. So you have them bent down and you have their head facing down under your armpit with your forearm under their chin. There are different variations of how you want to compress p- compress the choke, but essentially what you want to do is you want to compress the carotid arteries with, with the uh, biceps and with the forearm, and it's a very, very dangerous and effective hold, especially if you're dealing with someone who is a novice at submissions and submission defense.
0: Exactly. I mean, it's 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 one of the first moves you learn as a white belt in jiu-jitsu. It is the most basic of submissions. When you watch old UFCs and MMA, you'll see the guillotine being pulled off by karate guys who had three months of grappling. It's basic, but it is gosh darn dangerous. So that is where he gets the name The Strangler. That was his favorite hold. He used it constantly and dangerous. So, Evan the Strangler Lewis, not to be confused with Ed Strangler Lewis, who uh, came many years later. Uh, Evan Lewis was born May 24th. I share the birthday with the man.
1: Well, that's too bad for him.
0: Ha! And uh, he was born on May 24th, 1860 in Ridgeway, Wisconsin. And his father was a farmer and a butcher, so Evan grew up doing uh, hard farm labor, or as I like to call it, uh, rural crossfit.
1: Oh, yes, there's nothing like that farm boy strength, especially when you talk about a proper stranger hold, because what you're doing is getting a hold of that neck and just wrenching it for all those times you had to get up before dawn and, and burn the trash and pick the eggs and then. Uh, no, no. Never mind.
0: Keep on track here. <laughs> he uh but yeah he was you know there, there's a very big difference between weightlifting strong and practical labor strong. You know you if you ever uh you know get a handshake from a man who's been moving refrigerators and for his entire life that's a man with tendon strength. And tendon strength plays a big part in the success of wrestling. And when we talk about success in wrestling, we are talking about legitimate success. This is before the days of fancy, worked pro wrestling. I'm not saying that every fight was on the up and up, but at this point, things were mostly still legitimate contests. Are there gonna be exceptions to that? Absolutely, gosh darn-lutely. Absolutely, we will explore those ones as well. But at this point in history, in the late 1800s, wrestling was still a competitive, legitimate contest. So at the age of 22 he stood five foot nine and weighed 175 pounds which was fairly average for that uh, time in history and at the age of 22 he traveled to montana where he won a 64-man tournament five matches in one night and we're talking five matches of catches catch can wrestling
1: wow that's that is a very impressive accomplishment that's that's a standard you know the ibjjf jiu-jitsu nationals or a tournament of that caliber will often get that number of competitors but to have that many competitors in a single tournament back then is pretty remarkable uh did it did you were you able to uncover any uh details as to like what the finishes we have any submission finishes it was
0: this is unfortunately all the information i could really find that just you know so that's you know 64 man tournament 32 matches the first round i'm just curious how i would love to know how long this tournament took because i mean that seems like something that could take a couple of days unfortunately i couldn't find any further information um apparently there was not a lot of records for pro wrestling tournaments in 1882 montana but all we know is he won and he returned home and he was all fired up feeling accomplished and challenged the wisconsin champion ben knights who he defeated for the wisconsin title on march 21st 1883 in 1885 he moved to madison wisconsin to have a better training camp you know it's kind of hard to have a lot of skilled training partners when you're living on a farm in the middle of nowhere particularly in the late 1800s it's
1: hard it's hard to get faster when you're already in the uh, in the front of the race you know what i mean until you surround yourself with contemporaries that can push you and make you better there there's always going to be that ceiling that fighters face when they they have to ultimately decide to leave their hometowns in most cases.
0: Exactly. You know, you can be the big fish in the small pond, but eventually to be the big fish in the big pond, you got to, uh, you know, put on your, you know, put up, put on your traveling hat and hit the road to an actual city. So after defeating Knight for the Wisconsin title in the same year, he defeated both French champion, Andre Cristal and British champion, Tom Cannon. And in the following year of 1886, Lewis took on Sorokichi Matsada, Matsada, who we discussed a lot because of his numerous matches with William Muldoon, who was the subject of our previous two episodes. Short, strong, fiery Japanese competitor.
1: Yes, and one of the most difficult body types to manage and navigate in the in the grappling world is that of the fire hydrant. Short, stocky, low center of gravity, hard to get a grip on, hard to get underneath that that, that mass base and and he proved a formidable opponent to both of our
0: first two subjects here exactly because sorokichi stood five foot six and weighed around 160. so he's short strong but lewis was bigger and stronger which can play a big part in a uh, in a match in addition to being bigger and stronger his submission game proved to be a little stronger and the he secured his stranglehold once again the guillotine choke the hang choke however you want to call it and they both hit the mat the referee didn't know that the submission was a submission and didn't immediately notice when Sorokichi went out. What do you think, uh, about six seconds before you can be rendered unconscious by that choke?
1: Yeah, even faster if, if you just, if they catch it perfect, you can put somebody out even faster than that. But yeah, six seconds. And I think it's important to note the nuance of the technique is one where it can easily be applied from a standing position at just about any time when you're face to face with your opponent. And as as that was described, it hit the mat after he already had the hold, which indicates to me that he probably got his man limp or at least desperately defending the, the choke. To where he was able to to bring him in tight like an anaconda and finish the
0: job exactly and while that choke can render you unconscious in a matter of seconds it was 30 seconds before lewis let go because the referee did not notice didn't under maybe he didn't understand the hold maybe he had a bad angle either way that's um i mean I'm gonna backtrack for a second. It's possible that in these days, just nobody knew what this hold was, because it is one of those holds that is pretty easy to defend if you know what it is and you know how it's applied and you know how to defend it. If you know none of these things, um, would you say you're fucked is the best way to put it? Proper fucked, proper fucked. Uh, you know, I think, I think it deserves a proper
1: King's English definition. You're a proper fuck if somebody gets a hold of the old necky necky squeezy squeeze.
0: Exactly, so Sorakichi was out, out, out. Could have been killed out. And he had a hard time getting to his feet. Um, when he finally was up and Adam and able to think again he was pissed and wanted a rematch with uh lewis uh that barred that choke he wanted stranglers stranglehold banned from from the rematch um i don't know how you lose to a submission and then angrily insist that that submission be banned and ask for a rematch in the same time but hey, his hutzpah paid off and he was granted that match under those circumstances. The rematch took place the following month in February of 1886 in Chicago. As they were, you know, being introduced uh, and the referee was going over the rules and explaining that the chokehold was banned, Sorokichi, uh, <laughs> sorry, this, I just love this quote and I'm not going to do the accent because that would be rather insensitive, pointed at Lewis and yelled, you choke me? I shoot you
1: (laughs) and he's not and he's not working on that one. I'm sure he meant it. That is, you know, it's a pretty terrifying thing when you get choked into what we would call deep water unconsciousness when when the choke is held on that long, that can have a really lasting, terrifying and, uh, you know, post-traumatic stress inducing. Repercussions. So I'm sure he was very serious that he wanted no part of ending up in a stranglehold again.
0: Oh, absolutely. Um, so the match began, the rematch. Sorikichi came out super aggressive, trying to rush Lewis for takedowns several times. Lewis just stuffed the takedowns, had a good sprawl game. And... Finally, Sarakichi tried kind of a goofy takedown where he dropped and tried to roll to grab the, uh, uh, the legs of Lewis, and Lewis just stuffed it, grabbed a leg, and secured what we would now call a knee bar. Uh, describe a knee bar to me.
1: Essentially, what you're doing is you're creating a fulcrum and a lever similar to snapping a pencil. Your, your, the knee is the pencil, your, your cup, your hip bone, your inner thigh—that's your thumb—and then your grip on up on the top of the leg, up by the Achilles, is going to be the equivalent of, of pulling the pencil and snapping it over the thumb. It's a—it's a really, really—it's a—it's quite a dick
0: move, frankly. It's—I mean—it's a tough submission, and people who just crank it like, like, like crazy. Um, I don't like to generalize, but they are not good people. I love leg locks myself. One of my favorite things, I was trying to go for a knee bar. You bend to get out of the knee bar, I get you with a toe hold. You You stretch your leg out from the toe hold, I get you with a knee bar. I love submission wrestling because those little combos like that, it is just such a weird chess move of boom, 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 I get you 10 moves down. And you really started to see that with these guys because with submission wrestling, so many people, when you think arm bars, leg locks, chokes, they picture jujitsu, they picture a gi, they picture an, an Asian tradition, but so many of the submission holds and strategies are worldwide. I mean, this is a style that came out of Lancaster, England in the 1800s. And this is, I think, is something we'll probably talk on an upcoming series of episodes. Wrestling is universal. Grappling is universal. Submissions are universal because everybody's elbows bend only one way. Everybody's knees only bend one way. Everybody has to breathe. Everybody needs blood to the brain. And every culture has their own version of this.
1: Yeah, at the end of the day, the essence of submission grappling is always the reverse joint principle. Isolate a limb, compromise a joint. The, the, you know, the manner in which that technique can be broken down and different versions of different movesets can be attributed to different subcategories and, and origins of different parts of the world. But at the end of the day, the recipe to break a man's arm like a pencil is the same. Wherever you learn the technique, and and it's one of the things that makes it so fascinating, it makes the history unified, and why we can pick through it and, and draw all these analogies today.
0: Exactly, and as we stated, leg locks are very dangerous because they can hurt you so quickly. I've you know we've we've seen MMA fighters get major contracts cut because they cranked leg locks too hard after the ref said no. But here's a situation where lewis felt incredibly disrespected he felt insulted and based on having to give up his favorite chokehold he kind of wanted to teach his japanese opponent a lesson so he cranked the fuck out of this thing uh, he only let go and there's also a referee component because despite these being grappling arts that have been around for a very long time even at this point Referees, sometimes it'd be a Greco-Roman referee, or like we see in pro wrestling today, just some schmuck who happened to have, uh, you know, a little bit credentials or was a friend of the promoter. The referee did not understand this leg lock, Um, but the audience sure did because he was cranking this thing so hard and injuring his opponent so badly that the audience started booing him, started yelling insults at him. He was smiling when he finally let go, but that changed when he was on the business end of a barrage of boos and insults, possibly trash being thrown, that sometimes happens. Surikichi had to be helped out of the ring and his leg was badly injured. And Lewis, of course, refused to apologize.
1: Well, I think it's a true window into a submission grappler's character. Uh, The instinctual response that happens instantaneously in those moments when you actually have broken somebody's body. In my career, unfortunately, I've had many, many situations where that unfolded, as we know. But um, every single time that happens, I felt terrible instantaneously when it happened it's a a feeling that stays with you and it it truly speaks to the character of strangler lewis because the fact that he could truly feel someone break due to his his doing in his literally with his hands he's breaking this person and to derive the sixth satisfaction it really tells you what a heel this guy really
0: is it really is i mean I mean, this is like 20 years ago i caught a guy with a double we went up big we came down hard his arm was in a weird spot broke his uh um, forearm and that was 20 years ago and i still feel terrible about that and it was accidental so for somebody to crank a hold like that just in trying to hurt somebody trying to end their career and this is a legitimate career this isn't an angle this isn't some you know you know Bob Orton with a cast on his hand. This is a legitimate fight. This is somebody legitimately trying to hurt another human being, possibly on a permanent level. So it's not a good thing. Hate to say it, not a good guy. Um, And after these two matches, his reputation was very much starting to solidify both as a hooker. uh, Define a hooker for me.
1: A man that's going to get his hooks in you and not let go. He's going to, he's going to tear you apart. He's going to get a hold of a submission and he's going to rip on that thing. And, uh, hookers in, in the, in the vernacular of the day, hookers and shooters were considered your tough guys, but hookers were that next level. It's like the super sand, right? Cause it's that guy that had that extra bit of, of understanding of how to dismantle a body and, and a hooker was just, I, I think it was pretty much the high, my understanding, the highest compliment that you could give a guy as far as you know being a bad motherfucker
0: exactly like in in these terminologies shooter means a legitimate fighter a guy who's going to take you down and beat your ass a hooker adds a different component to it because he's good at hooking limbs he's going to catch you with those submission holds so a shooter you don't want to mess with a hooker you definitely don't want to mess with and his reputation for that was solidified at this point but Another aspect of his reputation was solidified as well. He was a shitty dude, and nobody really wanted to uh, to wrestle with him because he's not a guy who beats you. He's a guy who tries to ruin your life with a bad injury. So he would issue challenges and he'd want to take on all comers, but a lot of wrestlers didn't want to wrestle him because it they didn't want to have their career ended or be on the shelf for a year. Because keep in mind, in modern sports medicine, you dislocate your shoulder, you break your elbow, you're gonna have a top-notch doctor like put a pin in it and do this and solder this and put a plate over here and you'll be fine in six months. Back then, I don't know, they like tied your wrist to a mule and slapped the mule on the butt so it would like run and straighten out your arm while you screamed and then they'd cover you with tar and feathers. I don't really understand medicine, I'm not a smart man, but it was a lot more primitive, you know, 140 years ago at this point.
1: Yeah, a single submission fully executed past the breaking point would injure you permanently for the rest of your life.
0: And believe it or not, that's a bad thing. And on top of that, promoters didn't want to deal with them because that puts a black spot on their promotion. Referees didn't want to get in the ring with them because they take the blame for whatever injury happened. If you see in modern UFC history, anytime a referee lets a fight go one punch too long, they get dragged in the press on Twitter, horrifically imagine that when somebody's leg is gone somebody's arm is gone i mean they're still there but they're just like you know dangling like a like a like a red vine
1: yeah like a broken a broken candy cane still in the wrapper
0: so yeah he would be like for the rest of his career he would be accused of being brutal and cruel and There's really no arguing with that. In the mind of the public, he was the savage villain they hated and wanted to see beaten. And for months, he challenged many wrestlers, but nobody wanted to take him up on that until August 1886, when he took on former foe Tom Cannon. The match took place in Cincinnati, Ohio, and the press called it the most exciting match they've ever seen in that city cannon fended off the stranglehold. He knew what was coming. He saw, you know, saw saw it a mile away at this point. He'd already fallen victim to it earlier in his career. Um, And And even landed a fall on uh, at the four and a half minute mark over Lewis so Cannon actually got the first fall in this match he learned his lesson he avoided the main submission he managed to put him down for a for the first one the second fall Lewis caught Cannon with his hold and held the hang hold for once again 30 seconds before another slow as fuck referee broke it up it took Cannon several minutes to recover and get to his feet but despite the 10 minute rest he couldn't continue it's so hard to get choked completely out, especially a guillotine, like a, you know, a rear naked, the old Mataleon. you get caught in that. It's just like your blood to your brain. You kind of wake up and hope you didn't piss your pants. Uh, but you know, when you get caught in a guillotine, that's a neck crank, you know, that's a wind choke. There's a lot going on in your body that is not good. And it's hard to come back from that.
1: Yeah. Especially when it's held on for that duration. I actually, you know, in my studies, you know, as a jujitsu black belt and a, a longtime student of catch wrestling, one thing that I've learned is there are actually different subcategories of blood chokes. Everybody I think a lot of people in within the MMA community and the wrestling community understand that there's like wind chokes, which is cutting off somebody's air, versus a blood choke, which is cutting off the carotid arteries to the brain. But one thing that's of note, especially when it comes to guillotine-specific chokeouts, is uh, the two main kinds is a single arterial compression chokeout versus a double arterial compression chokeout. Because one, the single arterial compression chokeout can happen a lot faster because really what you're doing is you're blocking off fresh blood and letting the blood that's already been used leave the brain. So this can happen really quickly. And usually this is indicated by a quick revival and not realizing that you were unconscious. The second type, which it sounds like Strangler Lewis, really made a point to get the person to is a long term or double arterial choke. This is uh, usually uh, very easily seen because the guy will get bloodshot real bad. Someone will wake up, not remember where they are, have a really bad uh, migraine. And this is due to a basically a traffic jam of used blood. So it takes a little bit longer, but it's much nastier. It sounds like this is the type of a version that Strangler Lewis seemed to have perfected.
0: And like we said, it's like, we'll see this time and time again, where uh, he'll catch an opponent with his choke. He'll hold it on way too long. A lot of that can be blamed on a referee. If a referee slow, you know, you're kind of taught to hold until the referee tells you to stop. Um, but there's a, there's a fine line, a gray area. I don't want to judge too much with the information that we have. But... At the point, you know, he after 10 minutes, he couldn't continue. And Lewis's manager, Parson Davies, gave a speech about Lewis always answering the bell and never forfeiting a match. He came out and cut a heel promo wow. to this crowd. Parson Davies, and we'll, we'll talk about this guy a little bit in depth here in a bit, but you can, at this point, kind of see him as the Paul Heyman to Lewis's Brock Lesnar. Even in legitimate fighting, you learn quickly that talking a lot of shit sells tickets.
1: Oh, yeah, because at the end of the day, the fight game is about getting the people invested in one of two things,
0: seeing you kick somebody's ass or seeing you get your ass kicked. And people for years and years after this will pay good money hoping to see Lewis get his ass kicked. Cannon's friend, Jimmy Faulkner, was in attendance, another great wrestler. He was so incensed that he challenged Lewis if he would ban the stranglehold. We're going to see this a lot. There's going to be a lot of this. So long as you ban your horrific unbeatable move because we haven't figured out how to reach over your shoulder and do you know it's 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 hard at that point for people to face off against this guy but there are a lot of chance, a lot of but there were a lot of times when he went sure i don't need this hole to beat your ass let's do it this was not one of those cases uh parson davies once <laughs> This was not one of those times. Parson Davies told the crowd that Lewis didn't work for free, and if not Faulkner wanted the match, he better raise the money to make it happen.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. A proper worker about his dollar. I can appreciate
0: that. Well. Davis knew that by turning Lewis into the most hated man in wrestling, it could lead to big money and people wanting to see him get his ass kicked. And he ended 1886 undefeated at the age of 26, and he was ready to take on the world. Uh, In 1887, he had huge matches. He got married, but he also faced his first in-ring loss. He took on little demon Joe Acton, a British catch champion. Uh, Acton was five foot six and weighed 155 pounds. Smaller than Sorokichi Masada, but he was strong, very technically sound, with an impressive set of credentials. Acton had moved from England to Philadelphia in 1882 and challenged everyone at the top of the food chain. He defeated uh, Edwin Beebe, Tom Cannon, and in late 1882, he took on Clarence Whistler. Wow. So we talked a lot about Clarence Whistler uh, during the Muldoon episodes, another one of those brutal fantastic hard-working catch wrestlers and in case you didn't listen to the Muldoon episode you know, we should really talk about catch just for a few minutes Catch is catch can wrestling it was a form of wrestling that came out of Lancaster England um describe it for me Catch is catch
1: can is basically the art of catching a submission hole out of out of anywhere artistic interpretation and it, it really created a exciting variation on grappling up to that point because it really meant that the finish could happen from any position in any combination of grips at any time. And it really when you compare it to other sub sub uh, categories of grappling, such as Greco, where you're, you're very limited in some of the things that you can do, catch is catch can is, is a pretty much a wide open playbook. You're you're, you're giving your full arsenal and the ability to freely attack the entire body, and it, and it makes for some really exciting submission
0: grappling exactly and that's what everybody was being treated to with these catch as catch can matches in the late 1800s and when i talk about him taking on clarence whistler uh, which was built for the world championship which was simply made up for this match as it often happened in the business there were so many i'm a world champion i'm the world champion how there's it's 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 just one of the every it's like every promotion in professional wrestling these days has a world championship has it been defended outside of denver no Okay, but it's still the world championship. Yes,
1: but I have the world championship of the springs, old chap. It's like a Spider-Man meme.
0: <laughs> and you know, so in front of two thousand paying customers, Whistler and Acton wrestled for almost two hours, and it was a draw. You know, that he just because he couldn't beat, Cl- or just because Whistler couldn't beat him, doesn't mean it was a, a win. Doesn't mean it was even a good match, uh, because in front of two thousand people. They wrestled for a two-hour draw that was absolutely hated by everyone. And it infuriated Acton because Whistler just backpedaled, played defense instead of attacking. He would just squirrel out of uh, subs, squirrel out of positions, and it would eventually just turn into a two-hour draw. Lots of booing, lots of bad press. Oh, well, both men go on with their lives. So Lewis and Acton met in Chicago in February of 1887. In the first fall, Acton used a half-Nelson to turn Lewis onto his back. Boom, got the first one. In the second, he couldn't catch Acton with his hold. Lewis couldn't, he kept trying for that, uh, that stranglehold. But he was able to get a solid double leg that put both of Acton's shoulders on the canvas, took the second. And at this point, Lewis was clearly running out of gas. Uh, his conditioning wasn't exactly where it should be, and actin was, uh, you know, starting to come on kind of hard going into the third Acton pinned him again with a half nelson turn lewis was visibly winded Uh, a lot of the reports from that time said he was just breathing hard bright red in the face didn't have a whole lot left in the tank he came out aggressive and landed a huge slam on his opponent but acton wasn't really in in any danger and once again secured a half nelson turned him over got the pin
1: yeah that's that's a really discouraging thing as a fighter especially when you get into the deeper rounds the psychology of hitting your opponent with your best shot and it not getting the job done. Some of the single most demoralizing moments that I've ever experienced in competition are those moments when you hit somebody with a slam or a beautiful takedown and it is to little or no effect, it really can take the steam out of of your momentum psychologically more than just about anything else that your opponent can do to you.
0: It also is demoralizing when you lose the same way constantly. Acton kept turning him with a half Nelson for a pin. He couldn't stop him from doing that. And that really shows how next-level good Acton was because you know what he's going to do. You probably even see it coming, but there's not a goddamn thing you can do about it.
1: Yeah, and that's that's a true sign of greatness in any competitive endeavor is being able to get the job done when the opponent knows what you're looking to do and they can't stop you. And, I mean, it sounds like he had really refine the art of shooting the half. But at the end of the day, it's just as simple. I mean, when Chongo Jr. was six years old, his recipe for earning third in state was double leg, shoot the half and turn him. Run Run the half and turn him. I mean, it's as old as time. It is one of the most basic and simple techniques in all of grappling, and yet it's one of the most unstoppable and devastating when done correctly.
0: Exactly, in a way it was very similar to Lewis's stranglehold. People knew he was gonna do it, they probably saw it coming a mile away, but there was nothing they could do. So act enhance him his first career loss, and here's where I have to apologize for making a mistake. In our previous episodes, I talked about Lewis being too mean of a son of a bitch to ever wanna work a match. I was wrong. Turns out him and Acton worked a, a rematch that pissed off everyone. They had to have a legit rematch just to make up for it. Uh, we'll get to those in a moment, but first he took on Cornish wrestler Jack Carkeek in Minneapolis. Carkeek, uh, another foe of Muldoon that we discussed in previous episodes. And he caught Carkeek with his hold and once again choked him out probably a referee was a little slow to break things up maybe held it too long i don't have that information but car couldn't continue we're gonna see this a lot where he's gonna catch somebody with that hold and that's it not just for that round but for good
1: yeah getting completely disassociated from your entire sensory system is a really really gnarly experience man i don't know if you've ever done it between rounds but it's really something you should definitely not try it
0: One star on Yelp, do not recommend. So in April of 87, Lewis and Acton had their first rematch and it was massively anticipated as you can imagine because people thought this is gonna be a classic. But the St. Paul Daily Globe revealed that it was a Hippodrome. What's a Hippodrome you ask? It's a fake match. Hippodrome is an old timey term for a fake boxing match, a fake wrestling match for when it's all theatrics and not a real contest.
1: A hippodrome. What do you think happened to this term? That is such a fantastic uh, turn of the old verbal, as they say. I I don't know why we have, I, I did not know that. Legitimately did not know that before you told me that when we were prepping for the show and I, I'm just so upset that I have not had hippodrome in my vocabulary. You
0: no, know, I'm in the same boat until I started reading a lot of these books and old articles. It was a term I had never heard and now I want to use constantly because it's, it's just a great term, but uh, you know why they did this, no one really knows. Maybe it was to stimulate betting. Uh, there were reports of a few men planted in the audience trying to get side bets going, but no one was really buying it because the match was obviously a work, a hippodrome, however you want to call it if they risked their reputations to con the mugs, as they say, it didn't really pay off. Acton took the first fall in grand fashion, but then Lewis beat Acton in three straight falls afterwards. Um, and no one thought it was likely that Lewis could pull that off. I mean, that's really where it, what it came down to is no one on earth thought that Lewis, who got beat clean by Acton in this massive war previously, was going to somehow come out and pull these amazing three straight falls so it kind of made a lot of people mad at lewis and made people mad at acton it made wrestling look bad because prior to the 1915 new york city wrestling tournament most wrestling was legitimate there were con jobs there were fixed matches but then it wasn't for the sake of entertainment it was for the sake of betting or building up a bigger match in front of a bigger crowd with a bigger payday
1: so what do you think was the, the ultimate culprit here? Who's, whose thumbs were on the cookie jar, man? Who, who who put the call to have the work put in? I, Strangler Lewis doesn't type, uh, strike
0: me as the type to say, hey, old chap, I'll pay you a little bit extra if you take the fall for me. No, not at all. And I, I, I really, like, it's just a matter of guesswork. We don't really have a lot of source information to work on this because it could have been you know for the sake of betting they were trying to you know make yeah. a little make a little extra money on the side with a uh with a bet maybe it was um them trying to build up interest in a bigger match in you a know, bigger venue in front of a bigger match, crowd maybe, yeah. there is a possibility that organized crime was uh also doing some gambling on it and wanted to make sure things went their way who knows but all of those things are possible because all of those things did happen constantly you know the only champ in this era that seemingly never worked a match was George Hackenschmidt who was just too honorable and too all about the glory of Greco-Roman wrestling to ever be willing to throw a fight and there's a fascinating man that we'll be talking about in the near future
1: oh yes Hackenschmidt hacked his fair uh number of hacked to shit uh, it sounded better in my head man
0: i would certainly I'll, hope it did
1: i'll have it down by that episode <laughs> so I'll go digresses. and now
0: we're on to june of 1887 lewis and his manager charles e parson davies traveled to pittsburgh to take on thomas connor's the local champion Let's take a moment. I want to talk about this guy, Davies. He was a wrestling and boxing promoter. He was born in Ireland, and he was orphaned in New York City at the age of 14 and quickly found a talent for promoting and publicity. He promoted racing, tug of wars, boxing, wrestling, races, anything and everything. He got his nickname, uh, Parson, when a Person in the press pointed out that he looked like he was dressed as a as a uh, as a preacher, so just the nickname stuck, and he went with it. In the early 1900s, he even tried to form the first boxing league, the National Boxing Association, the first person to really try such a uh, such an endeavor, because before then, you would it would be like wrestling. You would just have I'm the world champion. Oh yeah, says who? Says me. Punch. And that's how you established yourself as the world champion. He managed boxers such as Patty Ryan, John L. Sullivan, James Corbett, and Peter Jackson. And no, we're not talking about the director of Lord of the Rings. I found this guy fascinating. I had to look him up. Peter Jackson was a black uh, boxer from the Caribbean who became the Australian champion. He was an Australian boxing champion. He was like working on the docks in Australia as a teenager as one did back in those days. And he quelled a labor riot by beating the out of everyone so this guy just walked into just walked in and just started swinging on everybody and cleared the whole goddamn place so he was a very successful boxer in Australia England Uh, but in America his uh, he hit a little roadblock in those days because America was racist as fuck so he couldn't get fights with the top boxers of the day John L Sullivan refused to fight any black fighter
1: even though they had the same manager and the same promotion you know, I, 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 he was a blimey shit talking shite, but I, he definitely got the job done. And what a what a promoter, man! I can imagine what a character Parsons was, and what a stable he has he has collected of of these. Top top boxers from the era.
0: Yeah, he really is a fascinating person unto himself. Uh, there is a nearly 700-page book about the guy. It's out of print, so it's very expensive. So I did not buy it, but hey, maybe one day I will, and we'll have an episode about him. But going back to the narrative, on August 5th, 1887, Lewis took on Greco-Roman champ Charles Moth in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And even though he was a Greco-Roman champ, the match took place under catch rules. So you can kind of imagine how that went.
1: Was it more of the snappy snappy or the tappy tappy?
0: Fortunately, it was tappy tappy. Lewis steamrolled him. He between the first and the third fall, it was like a combined 14 minutes of competition all the way through, which in those days is not a lot. We've talked about in previous episodes and we'll talk about in the future, these matches that go hours sometimes. So for a guy to lose a three fall match in 14 minutes, that's a, that that's a humiliation that's like a 2 second that's like a 10 second knockout these days
1: yeah that's that's about as fast as you could possibly anticipate from from a top guy at the time
0: and in fact most people agree that lewis could have beat him in two straights lewis would occasionally give up a middle fall if his opponent was respectful and on his home turf so if you he goes to your hometown and you're not being a dick about things He knows he's gonna win, you know he's gonna win, but he'll give you the middle one just to make it look competitive in front of your friends and family, which is weird considering his reputation for being this prick through and through, that he still had enough respect for the sport to say, you know what, this is your town, you need to look tough, I'm gonna whoop your ass, but I'll give you the second fall.
1: Yeah, it's interesting to sort of guess at diagnosing this, you know, the why of of these things that we don't really have a way to know. But you see how he was just so vehemently destructive early on in his career, and it almost seems like he learned to appreciate the value of building an opponent and the mystique and the and the, the storytelling element a little bit more because you see he's getting, he's kind of getting a little bit softer in his old age. You detect a baby face turn.
0: It's I mean, yeah, I mean, his old age of, you know, 27 years old. Uh, but yeah, and like I said, it's, it you know, who knows what the motivations were, but it was a constant through his career. However, if you made him mad, the night got real short. And I don't know if this was a situation of him being mad or who knows, but on October 29th, 1887, he took on J.P. Murphy for a $200 guarantee and 75% of the gates. You know, it might have just been the money on the line. Who knows? But Lewis ran right through him. He just went at him aggressively, pushed the pace, and pinned Murphy in seven minutes. <laughs> Not really able to keep up athletically with uh, Lewis. Murphy puked his guts out after the first round.
1: <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's a testament to the pace and the intensity, and maybe, in fact, the pressure of a, of a match of that caliber.
0: Exactly, because we also have to throw in the psychological component of taking on Lewis. Lewis, at this point, had... Injure people, hurt people, uh, choked people unconscious, people had to be carried away after wrestling him. And no matter how good you think you are and maybe even know you are, that's gonna be something sitting in the back of your mind.
1: Yeah, the boogeyman that you build up of an opponent that's truly become a name can oftentimes be much more daunting than the opponent itself.
0: Or in Lewis's case, just as. <laughs> oh yeah,
1: yeah, I mean, yeah. or worse. It, it can be really, really terrifying experience to get in there and find out that he is everything you were afraid of.
0: Yeah. So after uh, taking a pin and throwing up his lunch, um, he he proceeded to give up the next two fall, you know, the next two falls in a matter of minutes articles are vague but based on the reaction i, I kind of feel like the puke might have been off of a guillotine choke being held a little too long since it was catch rules seems like referees were bad at breaking these up lewis was really bad about hanging on too long so there's a good chance that it's just it was a ch- he was choked too long that's uh, a thing that can happen but either way the, uh, the 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 fans did not see a very long main event
1: yeah and and To give it a little context, I mean, this was the same thing that we saw in the late 80s, early 90s with Tyson, right? These matches would be billed as, you know, what, 10, 12, 15 round title fights, and he was putting everybody away in the first three rounds. So you're talking about less than nine minutes of action seemed to be the standard course. So you can understand why this feels like a very incredibly fast match for the two top guys at the time.
0: Exactly. and. You know, and he, but yeah, he had another win under his belt. And uh, remember how badly he they botched the uh, publicity off of that worked match. Well, Lewis was about to step in it again that summer when he cooked up a scam where they took highly trained athletes to compete in local field events in small towns around the Midwest, such as you know racing, marathons, sprints, track and field stuff under fake names for the sake of betting. It of course blew up in his face, and he received plenty of bad press on that.
1: Well, that is. Uh, you know, very tip of the cap worthy. The, the hustler's ambition as it were. I mean, this guy his had his uh, fingers in all sorts of pies, didn't he? He's, he's cooking the books at like the local track to see who sprinter can be the fastest. I mean, you know, this is like, this sounds like a, a prototype of white men can't jump or something, man.
0: Yeah. It's, it's very funny to watch a guy like this who legitimately was the, you know, toughest guy on two legs during his era but every time he tried to do uh, you know a carney scam he just fell flat on his face <laughs> stick to your strengths buddy yeah. stick to your strengths yeah.
1: he's a shooter not a worker man and he, he had to learn that over that lesson over and over again throughout his career
0: so after taking a beating in the press he ended the year by marrying a hattie thomas of mineral point wisconsin on christmas eve and then moving into 1888 he had a ma- you know his first match against william Muldoon uh we talked about Muldoon in the previous two episodes but maybe some people haven't listened or they forgot all about it a lot of CTE out there for wrestling fans I think uh tell me a little bit about William Muldoon
1: Uh, you know take you know the rock the the uh take take combination of the rock Muhammad Ali Mike Tyson you know, every single archetype you think of when you think of a crossover athlete and and entertainer and roll them into one guy. I mean, what was the Rocks running WWE? He was on top maybe three years. Muldoon was the world champion and in the world, at, at, he was either the champion or right there, f- Fighting for the title for a better part of a decade.
0: He actually he held the t- he held the legitimate Greco-Roman title for ten years, ten years yeah. which is completely insane to think about it in the context of combat sports. And we talked about this match last time, but I heard some got to read some new things kind of from Lewis's perspective because one of the um, you know I also found out that uh, since they were going under Greco-Roman rules. Uh, they had a stipulation because moldion was top of the world. They had a hard time really finding opponents for him, reasons for people to watch him come, to come watch him wrestle. So they had a stipulation that. Muldoon claimed he could throw Lewis in 15 minutes or he'd have to forfeit. And Muldoon had been doing too much theater, too many theater tours. He came in out of shape and he couldn't throw Lewis, especially under Greco-Roman rules. And that's not, that wasn't Lewis's specialty, but it was Muldoon's. And Davies, uh, you know, Parson Davies just told Lewis, don't worry about throwing him just don't let him throw you because playing defense is so much easier in those situations.
1: Yeah, fighting not to lose can really get the job done when the emphasis is on the other guy to have to secure a takedown for victory. We see it all the time in MMA when a when a guy goes into the final th- of a three round with a two round advantage, he just has to not give secure, not allow his opponent to secure dominant position or a takedown and he can pretty much ensure victory and that was the same strategy that these these shysters were using it this time against the against the first goat,
0: and the match. You know, and they even had problems. The match started late at 11 p.m. because of arguments over the referee. High-level wrestling, high-level boxing at that time, the fix was constantly in. So there was a lot of arguments before they came to a decision. And when the match finally started, you know, they were pretty even. Muldoon kept trying to throw him, um, but Lewis would always land on his uh, hands and feet or hands and knees. And Lewis would keep going for that stranglehold, but Muldoon would shrug that off. He couldn't secure it. And at the end of 15 minutes, both men were exhausted. Muldoon told the crowd, that's the best man I've met, and I've met them all. I couldn't throw him. Lewis was declared the winner by default. Backstage, gracious, uh, you know, competitor that Lewis is, was quoted as saying, he can't throw me, but I can throw him. He had a black eye from the face plant off of one of the throws, and Muldoon had two black eyes and a split lip. He knew they would have to get back in shape next time they would face each other. Neither man was at 100%. That hardly ever happens in sports, but iron sharpens iron is really what comes to mind with these two.
1: Yeah, and and it also it just shows that it's not a modern phenomenon that sometimes the greats we miss those iconic matchups at the moment when they could have been the most iconic versions of those matchups, whether you talk about Flair Hogan, whether you talk about Mayweather Pacquiao, right? It crosses it crosses sport and it doesn't matter. But yeah, those matchups and to get those guys in there. Being the competitors and the champions that both of those guys are knowing that they weren't at their best against arguably the other best guy of the era or one of the very best guys of the era, I mean, guaranteed. at at a point in career where motivation is hard to find, I I absolutely imagine that motivated both of these guys.
0: You know, Parson Davies realized, I can make a lot of money with these guys and signed them both to do a theater tour, which was exhibition matches and open challenges, where it didn't matter if you were Joe Schmo, the strong farm boy, or even another wrestler, if you could go 15 minutes with either of them, he would give you 50 bucks. And I'm gonna take a guess that he didn't uh, hand out too much cash on that tour. The partnership made a lot made the press question the legitimacy of their matches and the match beforehand. But something we see in sports a lot. Nothing makes people come together like money.
1: That's exactly right, man. I mean, combat sports is one of those few contradictory situations where your greatest rival is also your greatest ally. Because the guy that is the biggest problem for you in the ring is ultimately the guy that you are probably going to be able to gross the most money
0: with. So it was just a case of, uh, you know, it was a case of business, uh, you know, winning over hot heads and violence. On March 21st, 1888, Lewis headed to Buffalo to take on Dennis Gallagher and proved once again what a vicious human being he could be. Lewis had a stipulation that he could throw Gallagher five times in an hour. Once again, we're starting to see those weird stipulations to spice things up it's like using toys in the bedroom when the when the relationship's gone stale just keeps things interesting keep things hot keeps people coming back to see a little bit of circus sideshow mixed in with a legitimate sport
1: yeah and when you when you build yourself as unbeatable then it moves the it moves the goalpost as it were you know the the fans aren't gonna pay to see you you know superman is boring for a reason man if you if you are not rivaled by your contemporaries then then at the end of the day the the outcome is guaranteed that you're going to win that gets boring so they had to come up with creative ways to get the draw
0: and keep the attention of the people Exactly. And Gallagher clearly was feeling confident. He did not ask for the stranglehold to be banned. He walked in there thinking he was going to win this thing with all the confidence in the world. And Lewis secured the first fall in three minutes, which will definitely affect that confidence. Um, but he was frustrated with Gallagher's defense. He, uh, he secured a few throws, including one that sent them both going right into the reporter's laps ringside. Um, and then at the 10 minute mark, he got the second fall. The mayor of Buffalo was in attendance. He was a fight fan. And he wasn't happy with the viciousness of the match. He refused to let the match continue unless the hold was banned. So he did not want to see Lewis' stranglehold in there at all. So the referee let Lewis know. Lewis was pissed, but according to people who were there, saw a little smile on his face. He came out for the next frame and landed a big slam and started jamming his elbow into Gallagher's throat, choking him.
1: Yeah, that is... uh that is a proverbial uh uh prototype example of cooking the books for hometown cooking gone bad
0: yeah just put that you know just put his elbow and forearm just started grinding across the windpipe very dan henderson if you will
1: oh that's brutal but i but uh, but i imagine that that such a vicious tactic would not be employed if the mayor had not decided to call it on the fly and sort of take away his weapon against his hometown boy. So he said, okay, I'm gonna show you what a weapon is against your hometown boy I'm gonna use. And
0: poor, poor Gallagher's Got busted like a watermelon because of that one. Exactly. So he's just grinding his forearm and elbow into Gallagher's throat, choking the shit out of him. The mayor saw this and freaked out, demanding the match stop. But Lewis wouldn't let go. He kept choking Gallagher. So the mayor sent the police into the ring and they attacked Lewis. Lewis only let go when uh, a a swing of a police club missed his head by inches. The crowd went insane at this. It was declared a draw and Lewis had to flee the city to avoid being charged with inciting a riot. I can't believe I can't.
1: <laughs> see. They charged the most minutes the riot. That is some hometown cooking indeed, old chap.
0: Yeah, I mean, these are things that you can't even really imagine in in sports today. Oh, wait, no. Conor McGregor exists. But yeah, this, this guy was like, oh, you don't want me to use this hold? I'm going to be 10 times worse. The mayor, think about if that happened in modern sport. If the mayor of a town sent the police in to stop a fight violently with more fighting. And he just kept choking the guy while the police are trying to drag him off. The cop tries to swing at his head with a billy club, misses. And only then he's like, yeah, I should probably knock this off. Uh, The crowd nearly riots. It's declared a draw. And he had to sneak out of town under the cover of night to avoid being arrested over all this.
1: Yeah, and this is not a storyline. This is what happened, man. It wasn't like that Irish shite Parsons booked this in the back and had the mayor in on the job. This is how it organically unfolded. This is the level of emotion and and just savage reaction he was able to draw from the audience.
0: It's, It's beautiful, man, it's so amazing. Oh, it is, and that's why I'm really loving being able to do all this research and hearing all these crazy ass stories about how it all used to be back in these days. The late 1800s, is just the Wild West of pro wrestling, legitimate wrestling insanity. So we have a guy like Lewis, a master of a stranglehold. He's got a, you know, fast talking New York uh, manager just firing people up. He's hated from coast to coast. He keeps choking people unconscious. He is wrecking knees. He re- he's, he's the villain that everyone wants to see taken down a peg, but it hardly ever happens. And I feel like this is a great point, you know, as we're seeing him escaping Buffalo, New York to avoid, uh, you know, (laughs) rioting charges. We're gonna, this is definitely gonna be a two-parter now. Cause I mean, there's just still so much to cover. So, Good lord, absorb what we have talked about and keep in mind that it gets crazier after this. That when we come back for part two of Evan the Strangler Lewis, this story only gets wilder from here. It's as if we have
1: just started a riot in Buffalo and the mayor has asked for our personal heads on a platter from the PD. We are going to escape into the night and come back to you with part two of
0: Strangler Lewis. We'll talk to you then for Chongo Bronson. I'm Nick Gossard, and we'll talk to you next time.